0: Oh Loving Pranams at Bhagwan's Lotus Feet Dear listeners, I welcome you to this week's episode of the Gita series, A Tryon Pilgrimage This is Prem, your friend from Team Radio Sai from our studios at Prashanthinilam. This is a program where we go through the Bhagavad Gita verse by verse with as much detail as possible and the more we go through this phenomenal work the Bhagavad Gita is it only tells us how much Clarity can be got by merely going through our scriptures, merely going through Swami's words, because even this might be too dense for us, if not for the comfort of Swami's words and comfort of Swami's explanations. As you'll be seeing today, I'm going to rely tremendously on some of Swami's words to explain one of the most important shlokas in the Bhagavad Gita, according to me, because I will explain that when we come there we are in the sixth chapter and the sixth chapter is primarily about meditation and when we say it's about meditation you cannot speak about meditation without speaking about the mind and that is the portion where we are at where there's a very interesting conversation between lord krishna and arjuna about the nature of the mind and what must be done keeping in mind the nature of the mind to control it. We'll start with a short summary of what we covered last time. We covered three shlokas, shloka number 32, 33 and 34 of the sixth chapter. But before that we had a short discussion about the progressive steps in the path of devotion itself and these are based on what Swami himself has explained to us and this is in line with what Krishna hints at in the previous few verses that we have covered. The three steps being Samanya Bhakti or Bhautika Bhakti, Ekanta Bhakti and culminating in Ananya Bhakti. We discussed in detail about each one of this. If I were to give you in very short descriptions what they are, Samanya Bhakti is regular ordinary Bhakti is the direct translation of that. Everything that we do in the name of devotion, Japa, bhajans, seva, anything that is taken up as another activity among the many things that we do in our life, we also turn to God, we also pray, we also place our prayers, our wishes in front of God. So that is samanya bhakti. It also has its role, but it is only the starting stage. Then comes ekanta bhakti, where there is a beautiful relationship between the devotee and the Lord, where the Lord is recognized as the resident of the devotee's heart. Right? Swami said that that's the most important thing. Often Bhakti is merely translated or explained as having one-pointed devotion to one form of the Lord. That is also an important aspect of Ekantabhakti. But Ekantabhakti is not complete without the devotee recognizing the Lord in one's own heart. And then the whole culmination happens in Ananya Bhakti. And It is in the stage of Ananya Bhakti that the devotee sees the Lord in every person and every person and object as being a part of the Lord. And that was a concept that was covered in a few verses preceding to the ones that we took up last time. Verse number 32, which we started off with last week, was one that stood for the general idea of morality or dharma. And this was explained as a culmination of yoga. And as we've seen in many cases before, in the case of a sadhaka, this becomes a practice. In the case of a jnani, this becomes an expression. It's a spontaneous expression. So dharma is a spontaneous expression in a jnani and that is what is explained in this particular verse. Krishna says, One judges others' sorrow and happiness based on one's own sorrow and happiness. It is similar to stating that a good person does unto others what he or she expects others to do unto themselves. A very basic definition of goodness. In the description of a nyani, this is quite superfluous if you ask me because anyani neither has sorrow or happiness nor does he or she hold on to the distinction between oneself and others. So this shloka is again, as we have seen in the past, one of those shlokas that Describe the jnani but in the process offer a path or a practice for a sadhaka. It's a path of sadhana that you constantly treat others just as you treat yourself. And We discussed about that as well last week. In the 33rd verse, after a long gap, Arjuna breaks his silence and asks a very important question. He says, O Krishna, the yoga that you are speaking of, where one sees equally everywhere, one sees God everywhere. It doesn't seem possible to me. And he says, Chanchalattvat, because of fickleness. What you're saying I'm able to understand and I'm sure that to be able to see the Lord in everyone or to see the Atman in everyone would be a phenomenal experience. But I cannot imagine that being a steady experience. Right? That's the important phrase there. I can't imagine that being a constant, steady experience because chanchalathvat, because of the fickleness. He doesn't say mind, but it is implied. In the 34th verse, he goes on to describe the mind as he has experienced it, he has seen it. He says the mind is chanchalam, it is restless, pramathi, it is turbulent, balavat, it is strong, dridham, it is unyielding. Vayoho iva sudushkaram. It is as difficult as it is to control the wind. Swami describes Arjuna's plight even more elaborately in Gita Vaini. Because in the Gita, it is only two verses, the 33rd and the 34th verse. But in Swami's Gita Vaini, Swami kind of captures the restlessness that must have been in Arjuna's mind when he was saying these two things. Because here is Krishna giving him the secret to supreme peace but he finds that even though it is being given to him it seems inaccessible because of what is happening or what he sees as the flaws in his mind. So in uh, Swami's Gita Vahini, Swami writes and I'm going to quote a few lines. Swami says, these are Arjuna's words Krishna, all that you have been telling me is very pleasant to the ear and I can well imagine that it must be a source of bliss to those who attain success. But it is so difficult, beyond the reach of all. The yoga wherein everything has to be realized as equal, samatvam, is fraught with obstacles even for the fully equipped aspirant. What then am I to say of people like me who are common aspirants? Is it ever possible for us? Krishna, is the mind so easily controllable? Alas, even an elephant cannot drag as the mind drags one. The mind is the nursery of waywardness. Its maliciousness and obstinacy are also very powerful. It is a terrible shrew. It can never be caught. It will never halt at one place. The attempt to catch the mind and tame it is like capturing the wind or bundling up water. How can anyone enter upon yoga with such a mind? One seems as hard as the other. These twin tasks of controlling the mind and practicing the yoga, Krishna, you are advising an impossible task beyond the capacity of anyone end of quote so swami very beautifully captures the restlessness in arjuna's mind when he is expressing these words i had said this while we started discussing about the yoga of meditation even to try meditation and to do it regularly you need a certain control over the mind it is true that when you are able to meditate like what krishna has said it will be wonderful and blissful But how do we get there? Say, for example, in a corrupt society, if you have to make a good living and make some money, you need to have a good job. That's understandable. And in a corrupt society, what happens? For getting a good job, if people say that you'll have to pay some money in the form of a bribe or you'll have to, you know, some kind of monetary involvement is there, then those who don't have that kind of money will remain poor, and those who have the money, will remain prosperous right they, they are the ones who will get the job their children will get the job so those who are rich will find means of becoming richer and those who are poor will never be able to break into the cycle of becoming prosperous and that would be a very ridiculous situation i am trying to practice spirituality for control of mind but even for practicing spirituality if you tell me you should have mind control then the yogi will remain a yogi and a bhogi will remain a bhogi. There can be no transformation in such a scenario, isn't it? And that spells hopelessness. And that hopelessness is what is being expressed by Arjuna in these two shlokas. We all are in that state described by Arjuna, isn't it? Where our minds are, as Swami puts it, a nursery of waywardness, and it drags us around like an elephant. So Arjuna in desperation asks this question to Krishna not to challenge what Krishna has told but to honestly try and understand what Krishna is conveying and Krishna gives a beautiful answer to this question that Arjuna asks and that is the answer that we will listen in the next shloka. This is the 35th shloka a very beautiful, very important shloka. We as always have it beautifully rendered by brother Shyam. We listen to it I'll give you a brief meaning and then we have a lot to discuss about what Krishna says in reply to this very relevant question that Arjuna has posed. Shri Asamshayam Mahabaho Manodur Nigraham Chalam The Blessed Lord said, O mighty armed one, undoubtedly the mind is untractable and restless. But O son of Kunti, it is brought under control through practice and detachment. So there is Krishna's beautiful reply. Again, this is as I have been saying, is one of the most oft-quoted verses you will find in Swami's discourses. And many times, we find ourselves going to this verse when we are trying to answer questions that devotees and youngsters ask. How to stick to sadhana, how to control the mind, how to stay focused. Not only do we tell others, but as I said in the beginning, it's a statement that I also tend to remind myself very often because this has the reply to the question about the nature of a mind, the mind not listening to us, mind being restless, mind having a mind of its own as we have been discussing in the past few weeks. If you want to reach a place that is two miles away, you might have to probably take four or five thousand steps. But if I have to give you a description of how to reach there, with four or five thousand steps. I actually have to describe to you only how two steps are taken. I only have to describe to you probably two processes that are involved in taking a step forward. One, you will have to put a leg forward firmly and two, you will have to remove the other leg and take it forward. So this process of putting your foot firmly down And letting go of the position where the other foot is in is all it takes to take one step forward and you only have to keep repeating this for 4 or 5,000 times and you cover the journey of two miles. I don't have to describe every step thereafter. In a very similar manner, Krishna speaks of two fundamental steps and it is very similar to putting a step forward and letting go of where you are standing by the other foot. But repeating this process again and again and again can take you to the very end of the journey, even this journey which is the supreme journey to the ultimate goal. But these are simple. At the same time, they have very deep meaning. And luckily for us, Swami has explained this in immense detail in His discourses and my endeavour today is going to be to, as much as possible, share some of these explanations that Swami has given for you and me. The first thing that Krishna does is very interesting before we get into those two steps. He agrees with Arjuna's assessment. He says, Asamshayam mahabaho Undoubtedly, O mighty armed one, Mano dur nigraham chalam The mind is dur nigraham. It is very difficult to control. And chalam, always restless. So Krishna is not telling Arjuna, Arjuna, you are being weak. You are submitting to your mind. How can you say that the mind is so powerful? It's dragging you around. No, Krishna doesn't say that. He's saying, Oh, Arjuna, I am totally with you. The mind is indeed not easy to control, it is indeed fickle. In fact, Krishna himself had used these words, chanchalam, astiram, and also said that it keeps going outward after the sense objects, nischarati. These are Krishna's own words about the mind. So Krishna is not suggesting that it is an easy task. He is saying that I agree that this is not easy, this is going to be difficult. Having acknowledged that, Krishna states in the next line, Tu kaunteya, but O Arjuna, son of Kunti, abhyasena vairagyenacha Through practice and detachment, grihyate, it can be brought under control. Abhyasa and Vairagya. I, of course, very casually translated them as practice and detachment, but they are very deep words, but at the same time, they are simple as well. Swami would say this so many times in his discourses. Everything in life has come to us only through practice. Even the simple act of standing and walking did not come to us naturally. We were born. For months and months we were lying on our back and after so many months we finally get up on our knees and it takes almost a year before we are able to wobble on our feet and it takes a few more years before we are able to confidently walk. Right? We had to practice this act of standing and walking. It did not come to us naturally. Today I am sitting here and I am speaking fluently to all of you. There was certainly a time when I could not string five words together. Same is the case with each one of you. We spoke in gibberish, childish, whatever you call that childish gibberish, right? But today we are able to speak, we are able to communicate what is there in our mind. People have developed such great talents. They are beautiful singers. Just before this program you had the Bhajan Tutor. How beautifully Anirudh sings. How beautifully the other singers Srinivasalu sir and Ravi Kumar sir how beautifully they all sing some people dance so well some people play instruments so well all of that has come from practice isn't it and all this calls for training the body and the mind in a certain way depending on what you are trying to do so even when it comes to spirituality training the mind making it still or practicing the yoga of samatvam it all comes down only to abhyasa or practice. You don't have to be born with any special ability to do this. The hard work is what is necessary and the quality of vairagya or detachment to go with this abhyasa. Swami describes this quality in one of his Gita discourses that he delivered in the year 1984. Swami says, and I quote, The effort to recognize the impermanent and perishable nature of an object and controlling our mind not to divert its attention towards that object is called vairagya or detachment. To discard the object itself is not vairagya. Our attachment to that object must be discarded. In short, discarding our attachment to an object And then trying to enjoy that object is the practice of vairagya. So very clearly Swami says vairagya is not discarding the world and the objects that are in it but discarding our attachment to the objects. We will of course come back to this idea of vairagya after we spend a little time about abhyasa or the quality of or the process of practice. But one point that can be made is Krishna is saying, through Abhyasa and Vairagya, one can control the mind. So that is the semantics of the shloka. Krishna clearly says, through Vairagya and Abhyasa. But as we look deeply into the shloka and ruminate over the meaning, we will see how it also means the Abhyasa of Vairagya. That is, through the practice of detachment, the mind can be controlled. Even that is an appropriate way of translating. Of course, translating, as I said, is Abhyasa and Vairagya, but it is a good or sensible way of interpreting it as well. Now, the primary point is, before we get into a more exhaustive discussion about Abhyasa and Vairagya, is that we must acknowledge that this is something I want to do. Swami says, The mind is equated to the horse. And the word for horse in Sanskrit is Ashwa. And Ashwa is similar to the Ashwata tree, Swami says, or the people tree. If you observe the people tree, you will find a gentle breeze coming through. And if you find a people tree there, you will find that each leaf in the people tree quivers separately. And that is why the horse has given the name Ashwa apparently. Because the horse is also like that. It appears like it is still, just like the tree, but some part of the horse will keep moving. And if you observe the horse, you'll, you'll be able to make out this. Either the tail will be moving or it'll be moving some muscle in the back, near the leg. So that is the source of the worship that is called Ashwamedha Yaga, where the horse-like mind, Ashwamedha, the horse-like mind is sacrificed, Swami says. Now say there is a horse. Can I ride the horse? Will I be able to mount the horse and take it around? Yes, I can. Any of you can. But just because it is possible, it doesn't mean if I climb onto it, I will be able to ride it right away. It calls for training. It calls for practice. But if I wish to undergo that training, first and foremost, I must want to ride the horse. I could do a hundred other things with my time but I must decide and choose that I want to spend my time in learning to ride a horse. For instance, I have so far not wanted to so I have never learnt the art of riding a horse and so I can't. So first and foremost, I must want to then I must undergo the training and then I will definitely be able to do what I want to do. Same is the case with controlling the mind and turning to a spiritual path. First, we must want to do it. Of the many things that I can do with my life, I must feel that I want to do this. I want to control my mind. I want to spend my time in mastering myself, in gaining better control over myself. Most of us don't do this. Most of us don't take that sankalpa, don't take that decision and resolve. Simple talents like music, oratory or sports needs dedication. We are talking about the supreme quest achieving which we will not have the desire for anything at all. The success in this endeavour means that you will feel so complete that you will feel that I don't need anything whatsoever. It is the supreme quest how much more dedication and commitment this would call for. This cannot be a pastime that you take up during weekends or when you take up when you go on a pilgrimage, isn't it? This needs us to commit ourselves to it. We must say, yes, I want to achieve this. Then we will be able to offer our time and energy. Most people give it a shot like they do with other things, right? Suddenly you see somebody playing a guitar, you take a fascination for it, you buy a guitar, you fiddle around with it for some time and then you get fascinated with something else. That cannot work in this effort to control the mind. This is the greatest of adventures and it calls for a spirit of adventurousness. right? In the Kathopanishad, there is this beautiful dialogue between this little boy Nachiketa and Lord Yama. Nachiketa asks Yama, how does one gain knowledge about the Atma? Because we all know the story of Nachiketa and Yama and he says, three boons he gives and one of them is you know i hear that there is life after death and there is an atma that goes from one body to the other can you give me the knowledge of the atma nachiketa asks and yama is a little startled by that he says no the atma gnan is not so easily given you ask me for some other boon i'll give you that nachiketa says no this is what i want to know and this is what and you've promised me to give me what i ask for this is what i want So in the course of that dialogue, in the course of that explanation, Yama tells Nachiketa that God created the senses and the mind with this quality that it is always going outward. Though we call it a defect, this is not a manufacturing defect but this is a feature of the mind as we have been speaking about. The mind has been made chanchalam, the mind has been made asthiram for a certain purpose. So Yama tells that God created the mind and the senses with this quality that it always goes outward. And because of that nature, all these instruments man uses only to see outward and doesn't see within, doesn't see the Atma. And then he says, Kasyad dhira, some brave ones desirous of immortality turn their minds within and have a vision of that self. And then he goes on to say children or immature people pursue the external pleasures and fall into the outstretched arms of death. The dhiras having realized the eternally immortal do not crave for the non-eternal things there. So Yama says some dhiras turn to this path of controlling the mind and turning it within. The word dhira is a very significant word. It means, dhira means a courageous one, but the word dhī also stands for discrimination, buddhī. So in that sense, dhira stands for the one who discriminates between right and wrong, between eternal and ephemeral and he sticks to that discrimination no matter what challenges come. And that is why he is a courageous one. He is a valorous one. And in many places in the Upanishads, this term is used to refer to a sadhaka. A sadhaka who takes to this quest has to be a dhira. He should be valorous. It should be courageous. Right? Having taken the resolve to control the mind, not everybody takes this resolve. Because not everybody wants to ride a horse, right? Because it's difficult. Not everybody wants to learn swimming in the ocean. Because it's difficult, not everybody wants to climb the Mount Everest because it is not so easy. So one must take this resolve that yes, I know that this is challenging but this is what I want to do because this is what is worthwhile to do with my life. And those dhiras then will have to take up Abhyasa and Vairagya. Now I'm going to explain these two terms, Abhyasa and Vairagya based on the beautiful explanations that Swami has given in two discourses that Swami delivered as part of the 1984 Gita series discourses. For those of you who have those books and who want a reference for it, it is in chapter 11 and 12 of the first part of that book. For others, I will try to cover as much as what Swami says, but it is not possible to completely cover whatever Swami says, but I will make my best effort. So what is this Abhyasa? or practice that Krishna is speaking about here. Swami explains, this abhyasa is a form of tapas. When we say tapas, it is not uh, the direct translation of the word tapas, it's a penance. And when we say penance, we imagine someone wearing deer skin and going to the forest and troubling the body, standing upside down, standing with one leg, No, that is not the tapas that Chris Swami is speaking about here when he says Abhyasa is tapas. Swami says it is the sublimation of the tamasic and rajasic qualities of the mind. By nature, the mind goes after things. That is the rajasic quality of the mind. By nature, the mind is slothful at certain times. That is the tamasic quality of the mind. And true Abhyasa, which is a tapas, is countering this nature of the mind. And then Swami goes on to explain, this tapas is of three types. Sharirika, relating to the body, Vachika, relating to speech, and Manasika, relating to the mind. Sharirika, Vachika, and Manasika. Sharirika, Shari Tapas is all about performing good activities like performing your duties, performing seva, following right conduct, morality, keeping good company, reading good books, reading scriptures and the Puranas and the Upanishads. So all activity which is physical that keeps you away from physical evil actions and habits can be spoken of as Shari Tapas. Then Swami says, Vachika tapas. This is primarily speaking the truth, speaking pleasing words, speaking words of consolation and right advice and guidance when there is an opportunity, when someone turns to you and asks you for advice, give them the right advice, however bitter and difficult it might be. Also, The important quality, which Ami speaks of so so many times with so much importance and emphasis, maintaining of silence and the use of diplomacy and tact. And this should be used to uphold the above, whatever we have been speaking about. That is, speaking pleasing words, speaking the truth, speaking consolatory words, speaking the right words of guidance and advice. For that, you should use diplomacy, not diplomacy to be untruthful not to use diplomacy to guard yourself, to protect yourself. But to be truthful and pleasing at the same time, sometimes you might have to use knack or diplomacy. And for that, you should be able to use that. And all of this falls under Vachika Tapas. And the third is Manasi Katapas. Which in many ways is actually connected to the other two that we just covered But specifically, it is to cultivate good thoughts, have good feelings for others and very importantly, Swami says, being happy, being cheerful. And the means to achieve that is, Swami says, through the practice of silence, doing Japa and Dhyana, practicing Namasmarana, reading scriptures. And that's why I said that they are connected to the first two. And Swami says, this purification of all three the actions, the speech and the thought is what is referred to as Trikarna Shuddhi and in other discourses Swami says that this practice of Trikarna Shuddhi is itself tapas and by calling this tapas as Abhyasa Krishna is making it very clear that these activities will not come spontaneously to the mind at times in some cases where There are good samskaras from past lives. There might be a natural inclination to read such kind of books, to keep such kind of company, to participate in such noble activities like seva and bhajans and all of that. But in general, the mind wants to think of what gives it immediate pleasure. right? What is prayers? What is immediate joy and pleasure is what the mind is always after. The mouth wants to speak what is in the tip of the tongue. When somebody makes me angry, when somebody enrages me, I want to speak whatever is there on the tip of my tongue. I don't want to, at that point, think whether is this right to say or not. The tongue wants to speak ill of others and praise oneself. Right? I think we have spoken about this maybe earlier in the Gita series or in one of my Answering Booth programs where we have seen that when we are trying to speak ill about others, it is a means of asserting your own goodness. So it becomes an expression of ego. So the tongue is interested in doing all of this because it glorifies itself, it gives pleasure to itself through all of this. And these come very naturally to the mind. All these tendencies have to be consciously countered. Similarly, the body, it will not always naturally move towards activities that Swami mentioned. So it has to be trained and mind of course, we know the mind, the mind does not happily think about the right things, it is all over the place all all the time. So this threefold abhyasa is required, this has to become a practice, you are trying to counter the nature of the mind, counter the general tendency of the mind. If you sit on a bicycle, we are used to walking with two feet which give us the right balance. And now suddenly you are trying to ride a bicycle which naturally does not have a balance. A bicycle does not stand on its own. You have to put a stand for it to stand in one place. And such an instrument, if I have to climb on it and ride, the natural tendency of me sitting on a bicycle is to fall. So I am trying to counter the natural tendency of a bicycle to fall by learning to balance and ride. In the same manner, the natural tendency of the body, mind and speech is to go haywire and we are trying to consciously bring it to a certain discipline and that calls for abhyasa, that calls for practice. It doesn't call for any special talent. Just like everything else comes with practice, this also will come with conscious practice. Now coming to vairagya. Again, this abhyasa will lead to and strengthen this vairagya as well. But what is this vairagya itself? As Yama had explained in the Kathopanishad, the aspirant must turn the mind away from the objects outside and turn it within. For this to be achieved, the mind must develop some detachment from the objects of the outside world. Right? But Swami makes it very clear that this alone is not enough or this alone is not complete vairagya. Even as the attachment to the worldly objects is given up, the mind must turn within and must develop attachment to God or develop attachment to the Atman or higher truths. How does the mind give up attachment to the objects of the world? And how does it give up attachment to the pleasures that the objects of the world give it? The mind has to be constantly reminded of the nature of the world. Swami explains that in this objective world, every object, every individual and every aspect is subject to change. This universe is subject to what we refer to as Shadvikaras, namely the six types of change. We had spoken about it, I think, during the discussion of the second chapter. And even as we go through experiences in the world, we must constantly remind ourselves ourselves of the ephemeral nature of everything because everything is subject to the Shadvikara. So, six types of changes of being born, being destroyed, undergoing transformation, not going into all of that. Everything changes. The people we get attached to change. The objects that we get attached to change. The situations we get attached to change. Today I have a good name. Tomorrow I might be ridiculed. Today I have money. Tomorrow I might not. We get attached to youth to constantly remember that youth and beauty is unreal and fleeting. That will lead to Vairagya. Similarly, we get attached to family, children, friends and so on, constantly reminding ourselves who we really are. As Swami would say, we are pilgrims who for a very brief time in eternity meet in a rest house. Or we are like those passengers on a long journey who spend a brief time in our life with few co-passengers during a train journey in one compartment. That is what our family is, right? In this endless journey towards our goal, we have met any number of mothers and fathers. We have met and loved and interacted with any number of children to constantly remind the mind of this. But this dwelling on the nature of objects and relationships of the world Alone is not enough, as Swami says, because simultaneously one must also learn to contemplate on the absolute nature of the Supreme. Swami would say when you have attachment for God, automatically detachment to the world will also come. So both of these are very very important and vairagya is both together. Because only vairagya towards the world, there is another word for that. It means virakti, right? You kind of get disgust for those things. But vairagya is when you as you are giving up attachment to the worldly, you also develop attachment to the divine. The same discourse Swami explains about the many kinds of momentary vairagyas that we all might have experienced and we are likely to experience. We experience what is referred to as smashana vairagya. When you go to a funeral, when someone is being put on the pyre and is burnt, the corpse of a person is burnt, Swami says, it strikes you that one day I will be lying down like that. My hands will be empty. Everything will go away. I'll be lying down like that. Swami would explain this in many times in discourses. I think even in this discourse, he speaks about it. When you are burning a corpse, they would put a very large piece of wood on the chest of that body. Because Swami would say that when you burn the corpse, the backbone starts contracting and the corpse literally sits up, right? So that is in the past used to be described as that when the final journey and the final rites are being performed and the body is being burnt, it is said that the man or the woman who is there gets up to see who else is there around. And then the body realizes that there is nobody, I am going all alone, right? So that scene of seeing the funeral or the final journey of a person, Swami says, will fill you with vairagya that oh my god, one day I am going to go like this. One day I will be left alone. All my people will come and burn me. The same people who loved me will burn me up like this and go away. Why am I running after the things of this world? Why am I running after people? So Swami says that is that smashana vairagya. You will go home, you will have a bath and then you will ask what is there to eat. And that's all will be the period of time it lasts. Similarly, there is something called prasuti vairagya vairagya that is born out of labor pains Swami says that at the moment the mother delivers the child she's undergoing excruciating pain that she thinks that is this child worthwhile is this child worth having I am being put through so much pain Swami says the moment the child is brought in front of the mother all pain is forgotten the mother develops attachment to the child and a a few months later the mother starts thinking I have got a girl how nice it would be if I can have a boy. So next year, if I can have a boy. Swami says that's all is the time that Prasuti Vairagya lasts. And similarly, you have many, many Vairagyas that you experience all through the life. You want to study in a certain college, you work very hard for it, you don't get it. Or you get it and then you realize that it's not. it was not worthwhile. So you keep experiencing such Vairagyas all through your life. Swami says that, This vairagya comes and goes, right? And this vairagya, when it is not backed with that attachment to God, what happens is, when you have vairagya towards one object of the world, that attention turns to another object. When you face defeat in one endeavour, your mind turns to another endeavour. When you develop vairagya towards one relation, you get attached to another relationship. So they come and go and they do not take you forward. So you should have the vairagya that comes from consciously looking at the ephemeral nature of the things around you and trying to develop attachment to God or the supreme goal. There is another way of looking at this vairagya and that is most of the things that we develop attachment towards is because we imagine that that will give me a certain kind of joy. We superimpose a nature upon that object. We create for ourselves fancies about that object or that achievement. Look at all the advertisements that are shown to us, right? They want to sell us a soft drink. They will tell you that if you drink the soft drink, so many other things will happen. You use this perfume All these other things will happen. You buy this car, then your life changes. You put this paint in your house, then your whole family becomes happy. These are all fancies that are overlaid on mundane objects. There is a certain utility for each of these objects and the utility ends with that. A soft drink is meant to quench your thirst. A car is meant to take you from place to place. A house is meant to house you. That's all. But we superimpose more joys than what it really has and then we imagine that and we go after that. Right. So one of the ways by which this vairagya can be developed is look at things as they are. A job is a job. Money is money. Relationship is a relationship. And these are all ephemeral in nature. When we have the jnana, when we are Talking about the Jnana Drishti or the ability to see the truth, then we will see things as they are. We will see a mirage as a mirage. But till we get there, this constant reminder to the mind is very important. You remind yourself this is all it is. Today I lose something. That is all it is. I lost something. I did not lose more than that. You fail in an exam. You have failed in an exam. You just have to work harder next time. You have not lost your life your business fails, your business has failed, you've not lost your life, right? To be able to constantly look at things as they are, problems as they are, pain as it is, and not to romanticize it and give a layer of something. And that is what we do with everything, right? There is a, a layer on top of truth. And we run after that layer that we have superimposed on this truth. And one day when we have the vision of tatva, we see things as they are. So, Vairagya is also that practice of trying to remind yourself to see things as they are, and it does not come naturally because the mind is constantly being filled in by all the people, whatever we hear from them, right? And as we can see, this Abhyasa and Vairagya are very closely intertwined. The Abhyasa will lead to Vairagya and also protect it like a fence. And this Vairagya is what will fuel or constantly keep us at this abhyasa. And what we discussed is not any different from what we have been speaking throughout this program. When we talk about the three kinds of abhyasa or three tapas, that is all is what we are talking about as spirituality, right? That is what we are speaking about as disciplining this body and mind. But what is important are these? Firstly, the choice of taking to the spiritual path, that resolve. Second, the acknowledgement that it is going to be challenging. Third, the commitment that is necessary. Then comes Abhyasa or practice. And what makes this process unique? It is this fact that the mind has to be turned away from the outside and turned inward. The only difference between this practice and all the other practices that we take up in the world to acquire a talent, to acquire a skill is that This involves turning the mind inward. So that calls for this quality of vairagya. And the word vairagya itself has two meanings actually. When we use it in everyday speech, in many languages we use the word vairagya, it means detachment and resolve. I've taken a vairagya that I will achieve this. I've taken a vairagya that I'll become a doctor. We use vairagya even in that sense. Because vairagya means giving up at the same time taking resolve right so that vairagya is being detached from the world and developing attachment to god so if we want to reach that goal two steps are important the assertive step forward is the abhyasa the practice but along with that assertive step forward there should be vairagya of the other foot the other foot should leave its position and move forward so this Abhyasa and Vairagya are the two important steps that Krishna says, this will help you control the mind and it will take you to the goal. Right. So that is the 35th verse. We still have little time. We'll listen to the 36th verse. We'll discuss about it briefly. And with that, we'll conclude this week's program. Asam Yatatmana Yogo Dushprapa iti mematihi yatata Shakyovaptu mupayataha My conviction is that Yoga is difficult to be attained by one of uncontrolled mind, but it is possible to be attained through the above means by one who strives and has a controlled mind. Arjuna had said, this yoga of equanimity and equal vision that you are speaking about, O Krishna, seems impossible given the fickleness of the mind. Right? So Krishna is acknowledging that in the shloka. He is saying, yes, for the one with fickle mind, this yoga is very hard. He says, Asamyata Atmana by a man of uncontrolled self, asamyata means no control, asamyata atmana for a man who does not have control over oneself. And here atma or atmana refers to the mind because when Arjuna spoke of chanchalatvam or fickleness, he spoke of the fickleness of the mind and Krishna also explained about the mind. So here Krishna is referring to the person who doesn't have control of the mind, asamyata atman. For such a person, yoga dushprapa. Yoga is very hard to attain. Iti me matihi. That is my opinion, or that is my understanding, or my conviction. Now Krishna is speaking as a friend, as an elder to Arjuna. Right? He says, "In my opinion, in my opinion, if the mind is not controlled, this yoga is difficult to attain." Right? Just a while ago, Krishna was speaking as Ishwara who sees me in everything, who sees everything in me, he will attain the highest peace. right? That is what we often call in the show as the Ishwara mode. But here Krishna is speaking like a human again. He says, This is what I opine. This is my understanding. In the next line Krishna says, But for the Vashyatmana, Which is the opposite of asamyatatmana. Vashyatmana is one who is in control of the mind. Yatata, one who is striving. The word Yatata also means one who is alert because the striving that Krishna has been speaking about is nothing but alertness and being aware of what is happening in the mind. A few shlokas back, Krishna had said, Yato yato nischarati. Tata tato niyamya etat atmani Every time the mind goes outward, each time restrain it and bring it back inward. So the effort that Krishna speaks about is one of constant vigilance and alertness. So a person who is a Vashyatmana in control of the mind and yatata, one who is alert and is striving constantly. Upayataha. By these means, and what are those means? Krishna mentioned in the previous shloka Abhyasa and Vairagya. Shakyaha avaptum. It is possible to obtain. So Krishna tells, yes, it is difficult to attain without the control of the mind. But through this discipline of Abhyasa and Vairagya, it is possible to control the mind. And once the mind is controlled, this yoga is easy to attain. A point that I've made many times before, many neo-spiritualists underplay the importance of discipline and controlling the mind in the path of spirituality. Oftentimes, people speak of the Atma, we speak of Advaita, and then we say that you know nothing is right and wrong. After all, we are not the body, we are free-spirited. There is nothing like good and bad in this world. As Swami would say, Nashreyo Niyamam Vina. There cannot be Shreya or betterment without Niyama or discipline. And what we are talking about is Paramo Shreya, the ultimate betterment, the ultimate goal. How can discipline not be important here? So Krishna is making it very clear. Yes. That Samadrishti, seeing everything as Atma, is the ultimate goal. But to attain that, you need to discipline your mind through Abhyasa and Vairagya. Through good living habits, through good company, through good actions and words. For such a person, vashyatman, this yoga comes easily and not otherwise. So Krishna makes it very, very clear. Yes, it is difficult. Yes, the mind is fickle. The mind first has to be controlled. How do you control the mind? You have to discipline the mind. How to discipline the mind? Practice, practice, practice. And constantly remind your mind about the nature of the objects that it runs after. And through this, you control the mind. And whatever Krishna spoke about, Swami explained about the three types of tapas, it is everything that Swami tells us in every... Practice in everyday life, right? Speak the truth, speak lovingly. You might not always be able to oblige, but speak obligingly. Use tact when it is needed. Practice silence. Do seva, do bhajans, do japam. do dhyanam, right? So when somebody comes and asks, you know, I've been doing bhajans for so many years, I've been doing japam for so many years, but why is the mind not coming under control? The answer to that is as simple as this. Do more of that. Continue to do that. Don't give it up. right? Abhyasa is the only answer. And even as you do this Abhyasa, the mind has to be spoken to. right? The right inputs has to be given to the mind. Otherwise, many, many opportunities through this life. As Swami was saying, there are any number of opportunities for the mind to have Vairagya. Every other day, you will have a situation in your life where you will have Vairagya. You are going through a situation like that. Worldwide, vairagya opportunity is there but if the mind has not been trained to capitalize on these opportunities of vairagya they will just come and go right so for that the mind has to be constantly spoken to it has to be given the right inputs that is why swami says read the scriptures read the upanishads read the bhagavad gita listen to swami's discourses so that when an opportunity comes our way we will seize that opportunity That is the importance of this practice of abhihasa and Vairagya and it has to be done on a long term without losing hope with the idea that yes, I want to achieve this and I am prepared to go the long distance. So that is why this is a very, very important shloka where Krishna answers how the mind can be controlled and the ultimate yoga can be attained. So we will conclude with that. Thank you dear listeners for joining me. Week after week, we'll continue this next week. Again, there are very important portion comes after this because Arjuna is again going to ask a question which is very relevant, very incisive, if I could put it that way. So the answer that Krishna gives is also going to be equally insightful. But for that, you'll have to come back next week. Till I meet you all next week, keep safe, take care, Jai Ram.